Hello and welcome to Malanga Talk podcast. My name is Jerry Malanga and I'm joined with our fellow Dr. Josh Martin and we're here to give another educational talk for our future physicians. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so let's talk about anatomy first. Shoulder anatomy. What stabilizes the shoulder and or what stabilizes any joint? What are the stabilizers of the joint? Well, let me start with this first. Let me start with two broad categories. There are two broad categories of stabilizers. There's static stabilizers and dynamic stabilizers. So what would be a, a definition of static stabilizers versus dynamic stabilizers? For dynamic, you're also you're thinking of a lot of the things that move around, like muscles that are able to, for example, keep the capsule in place with the muscles of the rotator cuff. While um, static, you often think about the uh, ligaments that may be in place. All right. So static stabilizers, they work statically. That's the name, static. That means they work no matter whether you're a cadaver, uh, whether you have an intact brain, you've had a stroke, whether you've had a spinal cord injury, whether you've had a neurologic examination uh, uh, injury, or whether you have a muscle injury. The structures themselves provide stability. So what are the structures of a joint that will provide inherent stability of that joint? Glory. What are some things? That ligaments. Can... Okay. So ligaments. But what even on a more broader basis, what, what are the other? The bones. The bones. Correct. So, and there are some joints that are inherently bone, have bony configurations that are stable. So if we look at the hip joint and the ball and socket of a hip joint, the coverage of the femoral head in the acetabulum is inherently stable. So that's a hard one to dislocate, right? The elbow joint, if you look at the olecranon in the olecranon fossa as you go into full extension, that really locks it in. But the shoulder bony configurations are not inherently stable. So, it, but we have what we call a socket or the glenoid, and then we have a ball, which is the humeral head. And so what is the, why is it unstable compared to the hip? The depth. The coverage. The coverage is a lot less. Okay, so what's the coverage of a hip joint versus a, sh a shoulder joint? So for a shoulder, you often think of maybe about 30% of the surface. About 40%. About 30 to 40 with the um, glenoid. And then getting up so, to 60 So the contact so. area, if we want to look at the ball, and then we look at the socket, the glenoid. The contact area, surface area, is about 40%. Versus a hip joint where it's about 80%, so much more inherently stable. What else is the difference between, let's say, a hip joint and a shoulder joint in terms of the configuration? When the hip is more of a socket, of a true socket, whereas the glenoid, when you look at it, is rather flat. So what important structure helps to deepen the socket and increase the contact surface of it? Labrum. Labrum. So the labrum then deepens the socket and allows for about 60% now contact area and makes the configuration more like a socket. And it's also a static stabilizer. All right, so the bones, the ligaments, the labrum uh, in addition to the ligaments, then the capsule, right? So what's, what, what are ligaments and capsule? What, 
What are they made of? Connective tissue. Correct. Collagen connective tissue. And what will differentiate a ligament from a capsule? Configuration of the fibers. Yeah, it's the configuration of the fibers uh, such that ligaments are distinct bands of connective tissue, whereas capsule are less distinct, right? Less individualized, if you will. Okay, so we'll talk about those static stabilizers. And again, they will work uh, no matter what it, versus dynamic stabilizers. So the dynamic stabilizers, what is a requirement of a dynamic stabilizer? What do you need to have dynamic stabilizers for them to work? You have to, you have to have an intact neuromuscular system, correct? Correct. So you have to have brain, you have to have a spinal cord, you have to have nerve, and you have to have muscle. Because if that, any one of those things are not working, then your dynamic stabilizers are not working. So if you've had a stroke, you've had a head injury, and you can't fire the neurons to fire the nerves to fire, then you're not dynamically stabilizing that segment. If you have a peripheral nerve injury, so if you have nerve root injury, suprascapular nerve injury, brachial plexus injury, again, that's not going to work. Um, if you, people with various neurologic conditions, their stabilizers don't work. Um, and there's some interesting conditions that we see in PM&R, like FSH, ever hear of FSH? That's why there's this nice correlation, that's why we do the full specialty of PM&R, because you learn about these things that we sit in this neurologic area, and then how does it fit with musculoskeletal? There is a nice fit. So what is FSH? You know what it stands for? Fascial humeral dystrophies. Okay, so fascial scapular humeral dystrophy. So there's some facial anomalies that you can kind of clue you in on the diagnosis. Your very sharp neurologist would clue in right away on it. And then, so uh, it's a muscular dystrophy. Um, and it's an interesting muscular dystrophy when you look at the dysfunction that occurs at the shoulder level. Because what happens is that they get uh, wasting of their scapular muscles. Um, and with that wasting, they get significant impairment in their shoulder muscle function, such that they have great difficulties in raising their arm in forward flexion and abduction. And then they have functional limitations related to that. And we'll try to tie that in with how we do our physical examination. Or we can tie it in now. We'll just tie it in now. So, um, well, let me, we'll, we'll talk about shoulder motion and then we'll come back to FSH and how, how it all ties together. So the dynamic stabilizers require all these things to work. And what are the dynamic stabilizers of the shoulder? Your rotator cuff muscles. Okay. And what other muscle group in uh, general muscle group? But for your scapula as well? Scapula stabilizers. Right. So don't forget that the shoulder has a scapula that is important as well as the ball, as well as the humeral head and, and those that attach on the humeral head. All right, and so what are the rotator cuff muscles? The supraspinatus, subscapularis, infraspinatus, teres minor. Okay. 
And, you know, part of our knowledge is to know what is the innervation of these various muscles. So what innervates the supraspinatus? So Superscapular nerve, sorry. And the suprascapular nerve, where does that come from? So you're going to follow us back. Like for, um, like for C5, C6. All right, C5, C6, and what part of the brachial plexus? Trunk. Trunk. Oh, trunk. We did the root, C5, C6. Upper. Upper. Right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's very important to be aware of the innervation when you're trying to do differential diagnosis of things uh, during your history of physical examination. All right, suprascapular, uh, subscapularis, what is it, what innervates that? Subscapular nerve. Subscapular nerve, right? And where does that come from? All right, C5, C6 again. Does it come off the upper trunk? No, it comes, no upper trunk. He's correct, uh, upper trunk. Yeah, yeah. All right. And what cord level? Posterior, posterior cord. cord. Posterior cord. Yeah. yeah, very good. And what's the mnemonic to remember the posterior cord? Really easy one. And it's nice mnemonic because it gives you the nerves as they come off the posterior cord. Star. Hmm. Now you do. <laughs> so three years of PMNR residency and no knowledge of a simple way to remember the posterior cord, which could come in handy if you had a posterior shoulder dislocation and you impinged upon these various structures, right? So, yeah, ner subscapular nerve, thoracodorsal nerve, axillary radial, right? And that can happen with um, fractures of the proximal humerus, right? You can... All right, uh, infraspinatus. Yeah, the suprascapular nerve. Correct, yeah, yeah. suprascapular yeah. nerve. So you have to know where the suprascapular nerve branches off to provide its innervation to the supraspinatus and then to the infraspinatus and how different disorders can differentially um, compress the nerve in different areas, right? There's some suprascapular nerve involve both the infraspinatus and the um, supraspinatus. Others spare the supraspinatus and involve only the infraspinatus, okay? And then the teres minor. Is it axillary? Axillary, correct. So, and then, okay, so those are the nerve supplies. And now what are the actions of uh, these various muscles? So like so supraspinatus, what is the action of the supraspinatus? Abduction. abduction. All right, abduction, we'll just say abduction for now. We'll talk about why it's not really an abductor. Subscapularis. Internal rotation. Internal rotation, correct. Infraspinatus. Internal rotation. Oh, I'm sorry, external rotation. And teres minor. External rotation. So, very interesting. We have two external rotators innervated by separate nerves. And yet, when you try to, on Fine EMG, we did a study, when you try to differentiate the infraspinatus from the teres minor uh, on various positioning using Fine EMG, it's really, really hard to differentiate those two muscles and tendons. And the fact of the matter is that. And you can have differential uh, abnormalities on MRIs where you can have um, loss of uh, the teres minor um, in terms of 
fatty atrophy infiltration of this versus that. And obviously, um, you can get differential loss of function if you have an axillary nerve injury. So if you have an axillary nerve injury, what other mu important muscle would also likely be involved? Deltoid. The, deltoid, the deltoid, yeah. right. And sometimes, because the deltoid is such a big, powerful muscle, you, it will obscure any abnormalities of function of the teres minor. But you can lose your teres minor and function extraordinarily well. In fact, you can also lose a lot of your teres minor and infraspinatus and actually function extraordinarily well, even in high-level volleyball players that have had these subtle abnormalities, they, they seem to tolerate it pretty well. So, yeah, those are the gross actions. But the fact of the matter is that these muscles, like we talked about, are dynamic stabilizers. So their main role is not to produce force or action. Their main function is to stabilize the ball on the socket to provide a compressive force to maintain what is referred to as this instantaneous center of rotation into the center of rotation of the glenoid to prevent this ball from going up, from going forward, from going down, or from going back. <clears throat> now, while the bigger muscles, or what we'll call the movers of the shoulder, um, have uh, do their thing. And so <clears throat> within the shoulder especially, but in other areas of the body, we have this concept of something called force couples. The force couples are two muscles working together, together to carry out an action. And the classic force couple is the um, combination of the deltoid working with the supraspinatus. So those two muscles work synergistically to carry out the motion of abduction. We're going to talk about the middle deltoid. We can talk about the deltoid in general right now as well. What are the functions, the actions of the deltoid? Abduction, what does the deltoid do? Abduction and some external rotation. So you see abduction, external rotation. Anything else? Flexion. Forward flexion. What else? Extension. Extension. Anything else? Based on like the ant, you do have anterior and posterior fibers, maybe even some internal rotation as well. Okay. Anything else? One more to go. You're almost there. Adduction. Adduction. <laughs> so when I was at Mayo Clinic and I would ask the students there, they learned that the deltoid is the everything muscle, which is kind of cute and interesting because it carries it because it has three main heads, right? Anterior, middle, posterior portions. So the anterior portion provides forward flexion, adduction, internal rotation. The middle is the primary apt, and the, and the posterior provides for extension, external rotation. Very powerful muscle. It is the main mover when you're trying to do these functional activities and daily activities. If it's not opposed, so if it didn't have the nice force couple relationship with the supraspinatus, and if you remember anything about physics, force vectors, which I don't, but if you take the force vector of the middle deltoid, the force vector summation is a force vector that will take the arm out that way and will raise it up that way. 
And so if your ball goes up that way, what happens? What do we call it? Impingement. Exactly. We call it impingement. And in fact, uh, when somebody on x-ray, uh, when a radiologist looks at an x-ray and sees an x-ray where the humeral head is up here, superior migration of the humeral head, the radiologist will often say there's superior migration of the humeral head suggestive of a rotator cuff tear. Right? Have you ever seen that? No. It's common. And when I first saw it as a resident, I scratched my head and I said, how does a radiologist know? Because there's no soft tissue on that. Right. But they know because they were taught when you see that, that this is what clinically is known. They don't really know the true biomechanics that we just went over and all these other nuances. But it is important when we talk about assessing people that have quote unquote impingement, right? And trying to figure out what to do, what might be some of the etiologies of that type of quote unquote impingement. We've talked about before that impingement is not a diagnosis. Impingement is analogous to what in internal medicine people say is CHF, right? So CHF, what do they say in medicine? What is CHF? That diagnosis, is it a diagnosis? So your academic internal medicine professor, when you do morning report and you say, so-and-so presented with CHF, what do they say to you? Or what did they say to me? I'll tell you if they didn't say it to you. Okay. What, what, what do they say to the chief residents? The last what kind? They would say CHF is not a diagnosis. CHF is a clinical complaint and that you should not write CHF as your admitting diagnosis. You could write CHF secondary to cardiomyopathy from ischemic uh, coronary artery disease, CHF secondary to an aortic fluid overload, aortic stenosis, CHF secondary to viral cardiomyopathy and fluid overload. Right? They would push you toward a more definitive diagnosis. And yet, when the senior resident, when you would ask the senior resident, what should you write as the admitting diagnosis, what would he tell you to do? What would they write? I put CHF. They write CHF. Because, you know, at the, at the end of the day, 80, 90% of CHF is related to people with coronary artery disease and cardiomyopathy related to that, and maybe prior MIs. But they made a very important point that stuck with me, obviously, because I'm still talking about it. But, and then you say, well, what does that have to do with anything with sports medicine, orthopedics, musculoskeletal? Well, we use the term impingement. Impingement is not a diagnosis. And yet, when you read people's notes, or you get things that you read in books, they'll say impingement, right shoulder impingement. And they'll say that based upon patient's history of pain and, and then some physical exam maneuvers that talk about impingement. And yet, impingement could be from a variety of things. So what are some of the things that can give us impingement? Well, what do we mean by impingement? What is impinging? The supraspinatus rubbing against like the chromium. The supraspinatus and or other tendons, but more than likely the supraspinatus uh, getting caught underneath the coracochromial arch. So in a normal scenario, you can move it and everything is fine. And in another situation, you get impingement. So what are the causes of that occurring? What are the causes of impingement? 
you can get thickening of those tendons in the Correct. same tendinosis. Correct. Right. So tendinosis or tendinitis historically. Yeah. So that's one thing. And that thickened tendon means that the tendon's not healthy and not functioning normally and maybe not controlling the ball on the socket and causing femoral hip migration. Yeah. So, and just like CHF and coronary artery disease, the most common cause of impingement ends up being that. But there are other things to consider. So what are some of the other things to consider? You can also consider bone in terms of the shape of the acromion. Okay, uh, meaning what? Like when we talk about types one, two, and three. Okay, so you're saying that the acromial type will cause impingement. Although usually the bone changes are secondary to other issues first. Okay, you learned that from me? Well, that, that's not going to help people on this. <laughs> but okay, but you, what you present is often presented. It's that the the acromion itself changes, um, and Bigliani is an orthopedic surgeon from uh, New York who described many years ago these various anatomic differences of acromion, and described type one, type two, type three. So, uh, which is just a configuration of the shape. And so, what's a type one? It's kind of more flat. It's flat, right? Uh, what's a type two? It's curved, curved at the end, and then you get hook at the and end. And then type three is beaked or, or pointy. And the suggestion is that as you go from type one to type two to type three, then that will result in rotator cuff pathology, and thus the treat. You can look at that. You could get X-rays. You can get MRI. You can prove that it narrows the outlet. And thus, what you need to do is shave that down. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem with that is that those changes, you're not born with those changes. Those changes occur because something else caused those changes. According to Wolf's Law, right, the bone will remodel and react according to the forces that are applied to it. And so those, those forces are that there's repeated loading of the ligament, the cracochromial ligament, that causes traction and, and the spurs to form. Um, and so rather than um, those bony changes causing rotator cuff pathology, what's more likely is rotator cuff pathology and dysfunction allows for humeral head migration, allows for tension on that ligament, resulting in bony changes. So you know, somebody might say, well, who cares? And we got to operate on these things. So the problem is, and so the other interesting thing is that if you went by the theory that that bony changes was impinging and kind of pushing into the ligament, where should the majority of rotator cuff pathology occur? Should it be on the the bursal side, or should it, or or should it be on the articular side? Where would you expect you'd it? expect it to be more superior. Right. So more on the bursal side. But the fact of the matter is, when you look at the majority of rotator cuff pathology, it's on the articular side. And what we found over time when you study these things, because acromioplasty became a standard of care when you took care of rotator cuff pathology, is that acromioplasty has never been shown to be necessary or additive with rotator and rotator cuff repair, and thus now in many people's hand is not generally done.
But obviously, you can see that if you get enough of these bony changes, and you, you need to have, and it keeps, you can't control it enough with good rehab, that something may need to be done. I want to thank you for joining us on this podcast, and I appreciate your time. I hope this was informative and will benefit you and your medical education. Hope you all have a great day.